Welcome. This is Cascade Church Portland's podcast. We exist to invite all people to join us as we follow Jesus together in bringing heaven to earth. Israelite nation called the Babylonian exile. And what happened was Jerusalem, which was the city, the capital of the Israelite people, is where they had their walls. Um, and they, uh, that's where the walls in a city were important because not everyone lived inside of those walls, but you lived outside of it. And if someone came to attack you, the entirety of the city could go inside of the walls and find protection. And they had been, a siege had been laid uh, on the, the Israelites in Jerusalem, and the walls got taken down. And one of the ways that uh, in this world, we're, we're talking about 500, 600 uh, years before Jesus, Around this time, one of the things that you would do after you conquer a people and you take down their walls, they don't have protection. Uh, Now they can be robbed, pillaged by anybody, is that you would take their youngest, their best, and their brightest, and you incorporate them into your uh, military thing, into your government, which is a great tool if you give some people that are a part of this society that's now conquered, and you give them privilege and access into this new system, they're not going to be leading rebellions. They're not going to be gathering all the other people and being like, hey, we should overthrow the government. They're like, "Eh, whoa, 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 it's not bad. Now, one of these people that had these roles was Nehemiah. And he was a cupbearer. Cupbearer means that he would try the food, he would try the drink, make sure it wasn't uh, poisoned uh, before the king would have it. And so this means he's very close to the king. And so uh, what happens is he hears that the walls are down. And he starts weeping, incredibly sad. This idea that his history, his lineage, um, kind of, I, I think there's different times where at a certain point in our lives, we go back and we're like, where did I come from? What's the history? What's the story? How, how did I get here? And he's linked to that in such a way that this brings incredible sadness and shame, embarrassment. What happened to my people, this distinct culture? Now it's just gone. He weeps before the king. The king sees that he's sad and like, what what is going on? And he tells him about it and he actually gets commissioned to go back and rebuild the wall. And as he is there and rebuilding, there's this other character in the story, Sanballat. And Sanballat is there to taunt him. Like, what are you doing? You're wasting your time. This isn't worth it. And we want to look at Nehemiah 4 verses 1 and 2 and hear some of what Sanballat had to say. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? I, when I read through this story, I got so stuck on that line. Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Basically, the city's destroyed. It's in such disrepair. It's like, start over, man. Go somewhere else. Build something else. If you want to, like, gather together the Israelite people, if you want to restore this kind of cultural, this national identity, like, this is a bad place to do it. you got to clear all kinds of stuff. And these stones aren't worth anything anymore. They're worse than new stones. The worst, it's more work to try and restore this than to start over. And what, what that got me thinking about and, and kind of fixated on is 
I think in all the Bible, when we look at the Old Testament, one of the common uh, complaints or indictments of the Bible is like, it's an old document that just has no relevance in our world today. And ultimately, the Bible is a story of humanity and the story of God, and there's a timeless aspect to that. And I actually believe the more you get into the history, the more you understand the context, the more you can start to unlock things that are true again today. So it's like, what are the things in our world, in our lives, that like the cities, the walls that used to be, but now feel like burned rubble? That like, it's just not worth rebuilding. Why would we go back there? So I started looking up uh, some of the statistics for Christianity in America today. Like, what's happening? What are some of the different things that are happening in the church And so I have a couple that I wanted to show you that they're just interesting. Now, there's no way you can read all this. It's not really the point. Um, But what you can see here is starting uh, over on on my side here, going over, that's 18 to 29-year-olds, 30 to 49-year-olds, 50 to 64-year-olds, and 65 plus. And what those colors are is it's marking the number all the way up into the end of the green, that light green, is number of people that identify as Christians. And you can see it's up over 80% of people that are 65 plus in our country today would identify as Christians. But in 18 to 29-year-olds, it's somewhere around 56%. That's a massive shift in a generation. And we're seeing this more and more. The more times that they do statistics, they say that more and more people are identifying the largest growing religious category in our country is none. I have no religious affiliation. Before in our country, like, sure, lots of people had no religious affiliation, but you would say Christian to be polite. Now people are just like, nope, that's not me. Another thing that I I thought was fascinating is that we have a map of the U.S. This is in 2007, and these are a number of people, um, and this one's a little different. This isn't Christians in general, but these are white Christians. So people identify as white and Christian, and you can see uh, the green ones are, it's less than 50% but all the rest are more than 50%. Um, And some of those are incredibly high, like 86% uh, of the population of North Dakota is white Christians. Uh, Hold back your gasp, I'm sure you were shocked. Uh, But this is what's fascinating. This is 2007, in less than 10 years, in nine years, this is the map today. It's completely shifting rapidly In less than 10 years, we're seeing this movement. Now, this isn't just a decline in Christianity, although that's certainly true. It's also a changing shift of the demographics of our country. That people who have been, people who are white have been the dominant group for a very long time. And that's shifting. That's not the same anymore. And the reason why that's important to acknowledge is that when we see things shifting and moving in our country and like, what's happening There are statistical measurements that we are living in a time where things are shifting so rapidly. One last thing that I want to pull up. This is from the work of uh, Dr. Josh Packard. Um, We actually had the opportunity, it was like a year and a half, maybe two years ago, Josh Packard was here and um, a friend of mine was doing some work with him, filming him and, and needed to get some work just in a space filming him. So we did it here. And he wrote this book called Church Refugees that's fantastic. What he's looking at isn't the nuns, but the duns. Because he found this incredibly huge growing population still identified as Christian, but they didn't attend anywhere anymore. 
So he did these in-depth interviews. And one of the statistics that drove his work is what you can see here is they have zero as at the far side. That's like no confidence whatsoever in, in these different institutions. And 10 is I have full confidence in your institution. The top there is nonprofit organizations, and that's at a five. The, the median of the data was like, I kind of trust nonprofit organizations. Then you see business, education, international, healthcare, news, government, religious organizations is at the very, very bottom at 3.5. 3.5, a sense of confidence in the institution or the organization of any religious organization is the lowest there is. Isn't that fascinating? People look at the United States government and they're like, ah, I have more confidence in you than I do in these churches. Now, uh, some of you are like, oh, I see where you're going. Uh, no, let's not rush to anything. I just want to give you, this is the data. This is the information. And so when we talk about the rubble, there's definitely this feeling and sense in our country today that there's something that used to exist, that used to be normative, that isn't anymore. And I actually think there's a lot of Nehemiahs. I think there's a lot of people that are trying to rebuild. But the question is, but what are you rebuilding? What is it? What walls do you want to see come back up? And what's their purpose? What are they supposed to do? So we did statistics. Now we're going to do a little bit of history. If you don't like history, I am so sorry. Um, but I love it. This is going to be fun. We're going to talk about this concept called Constantinian Christianity. But we kind of need to explain what it is. So Jesus comes, and, and Jesus is here. He was around at about zero. Uh, that's kind of where we mark our calendar, right? And in the first hundred years or so of Christianity, as it existed in the Roman Empire, it kind of got grandfathered in as Judaism, which means it wasn't honored, respected, or seen as its own thing. It wasn't like this religion that was recognized, but it was like, yeah, you're just kind of Jew-ish, you know? <laughs> That was funny, but it didn't mean to be a joke. <laughs> you, you're, you are, you're, you're in this system. You're like kind of an offshoot of this Jewish religion. And so it, it kind of escaped a lot of attention, but ultimately it started to become heavily persecuted. And there's stories about Nero as empire, lighting human torches of Christians at his parties. Uh, one of the things that was a, a huge moment in the life of the church was about uh, 120. There's a trial uh, by a governor, Pliny the Younger, and Pliny the Younger heard these accusations against Christians, and he decided, like, after listening to them and, like, I don't know, they just kind of love people and they're interested in serving the poor, and he wasn't like, we should recognize them, but he was like, let's ignore them. Let's not persecute them anymore. But there's no way of overstating that at this point in history, if that trajectory had continued, and you can, who knows, right? We're dealing with hypotheticals. But I'd say it's very likely we wouldn't be here today if 300 doesn't happen. It would have been, at that point, we're like, Christianity, that's America. No, it would have been an Eastern religion, a small Eastern religion, if it hadn't been for the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. And Constantine, who is the emperor of Rome at the time, he has this vision of the cross before this huge battle. He sees, like, Jesus. And so he decides to put the cross on the shields, and they lead warfare, and they win. 
And Constantine becomes this incredibly powerful Roman emperor because he's defeated everybody. He's wiped everyone out. He's reinstated the Pax Romana, which is a way of saying peace through the power of Rome, through military might. And what he does at that point is many evidence says he didn't like convert, he didn't say the sinner's prayer, become a Christian forever, institute Sunday school, and lead revivals. No. He adopted it as just a part of his full palette of religious expression. But what he did that was so important was he started funding Christianity. Uh, If you go to Jerusalem, the Holy Sepulcher, that's built by Constantine. Constantine said, let's build that. All of the councils that kind of give us the different creeds that are so important to to the Christian faith, Constantine called those and set those up. And if you go in Christian history, what people had to say about Constantine, they weren't like, I don't know, the guy had his flaws. They're like, he's amazing. Because can you imagine being nothing, being ignored, and if people find you out, some hostility to being a state-recognized religion that's actively funded by the Roman government? It changes everything. It takes it from the sidelines to the center stage, and it blows it up. But at what cost? Think about for a second just patterns of history and how quickly we get from one thing to another. What is the cross? That thing that Constantine saw, what is the cross? It's an instrument of torture created by the Roman government to say, this is what happens when you cross us. It was a way of keeping everybody in submission. And Jesus, who Christians believe this is the God of the universe, didn't lead a military battle didn't bring down legions of angels to destroy the Romans and create the kingdom of God on earth again. Jesus didn't come to create a new Jerusalem, even though his closest followers, that's exactly what they wanted. He said, you want to see true power? It's not through violence. It's through overcoming violence. So what happens when this idea of incredible peace, this power that's held in meekness, which means you want to see my power, my power will never be used for myself. It will always be used to serve those who don't have it. There's, there's a number of things that people say, Jesus always did this or Jesus always did that, and it's suspect. So, you know, dig and research. You won't find one instance of Jesus Christ ever using the substantial power that the God of the universe in human form has for himself. Not once. It's always for people who don't have it. But now the emperor of Rome sees it. He puts a cross on his shields and slaughters thousands of people and like, this is Christianity now. And now let's start funding it. And now let's start having it be this big thing The cross on a shield or the cross on a sword is an insane thought to Jesus Christ. The one who, as he was being arrested, one of his followers cuts off the ear of a guard. He's like, put your sword away. Does a miracle to reattach the ear. Like, we're better than this. This isn't who we are. And we put it on shields and swords. The concept of Christianity gets co-opted by those in power And it isn't used to serve those who don't have it. It's used to reinforce power. Now, I'd love to tell you it's the only time in the history of Christianity it happened, but it's not true. We have a statue here. This is Godfrey of Bouillon. Uh, Nope. (laughs) We can go back even one more. This is actually, there we go. 
what you don't know is in the new biopic uh, starring Godfrey Bouillon, uh, Liam Neeson will be playing that character. <laughs> uh, this is Jeffrey, uh, Godfrey, excuse me. He was a knight, and uh, he was sent out on the first crusades. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the crusades, the Pope says, this is ridiculous that we don't have Jerusalem. Jerusalem should belong to us as Christians. And I bet there is thousands of Jews like, wait, really? <laughs> like, no, Christianity, we should have it. And at this point in time, Muslims are the ones that own and are in charge in Jerusalem. So they send this, the nightly um, group of people, thousands and thousands of knights who have trained in warfare from England and France across the country to go lead a war and a siege against Jerusalem. And the speech that the Pope does, that this is our manifest destiny, this is what Jesus wants, what God wants is us to reclaim and rebuild something that was lost. It's so stirring that a bunch of the peasants go too. And the stories of what happened in the crusade are gruesome. The peasant class kills thousands and thousands of Jews in the Rhineland during the Crusades because they are trying to instigate the second coming of Jesus. It's this, actually a pattern that happens again through the writings of Martin Luther late in his life and certainly in Nazi Germany. This idea that was all influenced that we need to convert the Jews and if we can't, then we wipe them out and this is what leads Jesus to come back. Then they lead a siege onto a city and they destroy, they kill all of the Muslims who are living there and had made their home there for generations to reclaim it for Jesus. Do, do you see again this way of Constantinian Christianity? We're calling it Christianity, but I can't imagine that Jesus is up there or wherever Jesus is, cheering on like, yay, go, slaughter them. That's kind of my whole vibe, the three years in ministry I did. It was just about wiping people out and claiming it as your own. It's this new kind of Christ Constantinian Christianity that we hold this power. And what's fascinating to me in that statue of Godfrey, this wasn't something that like a long, this was a statue that was built in the 1800s. The Crusades happened around 500. In the 1800s, 1300 years later, this still felt like something to celebrate. If you go to many Chris, private Christian schools today, their mascot will be the Crusaders. What? We're proud of that part of our history? We're celebrating hundreds. Pope Julius. The last thing I want to tell you about is this is in the 1500s, Pope Julius II. And actually, the thing that I thought was fascinating is that first image of Constantine. Uh, actually, if we could go back to that first image of Constantine, uh, this is a fresco that's in the Vatican. This is in the Vatican. And you can see there's Constantine. He's glowing and golden. The angels are pointing out the people to kill. You missed one over there. Who was the Pope that got this fresco made? It was actually Pope Leo X, who's followed Pope Julius II. He was known as the warrior Pope. The warrior pope, are you processing this information? The pope, the leader of not a kind of Christianity, not Catholic Christianity, Christianity full stop, was known as the warrior pope. Like the pope would walk in and be like, oh yeah, who wants to come mess with me? 
And this is what Pope does when we have this picture of Pope Julius II. He was known as the warrior Pope because he went in with a military. He had a guard around him at all time, and he would kill and wipe out people that questioned his authority as the leader of the Christian church. And they made paintings of this. They're like, this guy was awesome. And he also is the one that commissioned the rebuilding, speaking of rebuilding, of St. Peter's Basilica. And how did he fund it? Indulgences. Indulgences were like, hey, I know you're going to sin. Do you know you're going to sin? How much are you willing to pay for us to pretend that God doesn't see it and doesn't care anymore? And that's how they funded the rebuilding of it, the selling of indulgences. The fact that that this church exists in kind of this threat of Protestantism is brought about by Martin Luther was like, what is going on here? What are we building and rebuilding? And he posted his 95 theses that say, this isn't the thing. This isn't the thing. The reason why I go through all of that is the question is, when it comes to Christianity, what are we building or rebuilding? Is it Christianity getting to the heart of who Jesus Christ was and lived and how Jesus used power? Or do we just slap Jesus' name on something that's very different, that has another experience? We're going to get a little dangerous here for a second. It made the news not so long ago that we were separating children of immigrants coming into the country, illegal immigrants. We were separating children from parents. And not like a little separation. Like if you've listened to news stories, like the parents are in Seattle and their four-year-old children are in New York City. Jeff Sessions made a comment about this and he quoted Romans 13 as the justification for these actions. That basically we need to respond to the rule of government. We need to follow the rules. We put a cross on a shield we've used something to reinforce power systems and structures that already exist. We start riding in on horses with swords and we're claiming Jesus and we're calling out Jesus, but there's nothing in the life of Jesus that I would say justifies those actions or behaviors or thoughts. We've just slapped the Jesus sticker on it. And so we're building something, but what are we building? I want to quickly look at, if we call this cycle that started with Constantine, I think it's happened over and over and over again, this Constantinian Christianity. I think it's marked by these three things, and I kind of want to, not kind of, I want to talk about them now. And then we'll get to that video clip. First, the marks of Constantinian Christianity, uh, power under attack. What I mean by that is when you buy into this thing of uh, Constantinian Christianity, usually it's from people that have the power. Go back through that story. The knightly class had power. They weren't the bottom of the totem pole. They were actually quite high. It was the emperor of Rome in Constantine. It was the pope who was the leader. But they believed and they shared a story of being under attack. Our ideas, our values are being compromised and taken out. We don't have any power. We have to fight back to gain what little thing we have. This is a mark of Constantinian Christianity. If you're talking about yourself as powerless and you have power within a system, you zoom out a little bit and you're like, oh, I make up the majority, but you talk about yourself as an oppressed, marginalized individual, that's a mark of Constantinian Christianity. And more than that, it makes some sense 
Quick little side note here. The entirety of the Bible is written from the oppressed, marginalized viewpoint. At no point during any of the writings were they just rulers of the roost. So if you keep on reading these things and you don't understand where I sit in the world today and where the people that wrote this at and you adopt this mindset, I mean, one of the things that is fascinating to me is when you're in majority white churches that sing African-American spirituals. Swing low, sweet chariot? What, what chariot needs to take you away? What, 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 what thing are you involved in right now that you're talking about this mournful cry from the grips of slavery being pulled from your home and we've just slapped a sticker on it and like, mm, that's ours now. When you're in power and you talk about yourself as under attack, it's a mark of Constantinian Christianity. The next one is othering. You have to create a nameless, faceless other that deserves to be wiped out because they don't really have an identity. You can't go out and wipe out a whole city full of Muslims in the Crusades if they're human beings and people. If they have the image of God planted within them, you can't just go wipe them out. And a mark of Constantinian Christianity is Jesus is with us and not them. So they are the ones that need to be attacked, need to be pushed back. They need to be shoved down because Jesus is with us. Which again, just think about the life of Jesus. Tell me the times Jesus is like, hey, me and my posse, we're over here. And you all don't get in. The common thing that they said about Jesus is his, his table was too big. His lines were too open. He hung out with too many people. Jesus never participated in the actions of othering. They were all people that were deeply significant to Jesus Christ because as God of the universe, these were all made and known and loved by Jesus. If you call yourself a Christian, you participate in othering, it's Constantinian Christianity. The last one, exploitation as blessings. Now you start counting certain things. It's like, look at how God has blessed us. Look at St. Peter's Basilica. Look at how beautiful this is. Built on the backs of oppression and attack and warfare. Look at how God has blessed us. And God's like, was not me. I, I had no part in that thing. That was you slapping your name and sticker on me. And you see this all the time, even in culture today, hashtag blessed. <laughs> Where does that come from? One of the things that is interesting to me in the world we live in today is that if you go to Walmart and you buy a bouncy ball made in China for 50 cents, we'd all agree that's like, right? I'm not like Lucille Bluth saying like, how much is a banana? Like... <laughs> Like that, we would all agree, like 50 cents for a bouncy ball seems about right. Do you think it costs 50 cents to create, manufacture, and ship over to our country, and then to be placed in that store that is owned by a business and run by people here? No, it didn't. Somewhere along the supply chain, someone got exploited. That's why it's 50 cents. Now, I know finances are tough for people in this room. I'm not trying to shame you and saying if you buy inexpensive goods, you're being awful and terrible. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is when you're like, look at this thing I got for nothing, hashtag blessed, 
it might be better to ask, why did you get it that cheaply? And who didn't get paid so that you could pay less of your income to purchase it for that amount? If you celebrate the exploitation of others as blessing, that's a mark of Constantinian Christianity. Here's how I think it works. I think we step into it. We see this thing. I don't actually question the encounter of Jesus Christ by Constantine. I think Constantine had an experience, but I don't think Constantine was willing to take it all the way. Like he had enough of it, but not the whole thing. And so we have this video clip that I heard recently. And the reason why I think it's so instructive is because I think it points out this disconnect in Liam Neeson, but it reflects a disconnect that exists in so many of us. This is an interview he was doing for this movie called The Commuter, and he's talking about pay discrepancy between female actors and, and male actors in Hollywood. How do you think we can move past that? We're starting. We're starting, and it has to start, you know, and it's, it's starting with these extraordinary actresses and brave ladies, and, and, uh, and we as men have got to be part of it, you know. We started it, so we have to be part of the solution. So would you take a pay cut to kind of equal things out? No. Pay cut? No, 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 no. That's gone too far. Uh, no, there has to be parity. There just has to be. He's like, it is so wrong. He sees it. It's so wrong that women get paid this and men get paid this. Recently in the Me Too movement, there was a shooting of a movie where Kevin Spacey was removed from the movie because of allegations against him. They reshot it, and so Mark Wahlberg and Michelle Williams both reshot it. Mark Wahlberg got paid $1 million for the reshoot. Michelle Williams got paid $10,000. Now, it has to do with contract language and all of that. I get it's a complex issue. But ultimately, you can see something. You can be a champion for something. But like, hey, are you willing to have this thing impact your power, your domain? No. No, 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 no. That's going too far. Even in our most charitable, what he's saying is like, they just need to get paid the same amount as I get. Like, we don't want to pad the studio's numbers. Maybe. But I think there's a part in all of us that we champion these things. We see these things like, yes, Christianity, I understand and see who Jesus is, or I'm growing an understanding of that. And yes, it has to, it can't be Constantinian Christianity. We have to stop exploitation. We have to do that. Hey, will you do this thing? No, 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 no. That's gone too far. Going back to the line before when Sanballat is saying to Nehemiah, how can you bring life back to this rubble as burned as it is? It's hard work. It requires sacrifice. It requires leaning into a difficult way of doing things. So what I want to do now is to, to talk about Cascade in the church for a little bit. Don't get too worried. This isn't like another hour. We're not halfway through. <laughs> but... As I talk about it, I don't want to paint this as, and Cascade is over here. We've rejected all forms of Constantinian Christianity, and we're awesome. Sign on up. Instead, what I'm trying to say is there's a heart and a goal of what we're trying to rebuild. But unless we say it publicly, and we say this is what we're trying to do, we actually can't hold ourselves accountable to that. 
just up for us to decide. That's a big part of this eight-week experiment, is how are we actually engaging in something together and informing something together? Because for us as staff, we don't think we have it all figured out. In fact, we are certain we will screw it up in many different times. And so we want to equip all of us to have eyes for it and to see it. The first thing I want to talk about is in Nehemiah 4.13, as it kind of continued in this passage, there's this interesting little line. And this is Nehemiah writing, he said, Therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families. Basically, they were under attack as they were rebuilding. And they said, we have to continue rebuilding this wall, but if we're all rebuilding the wall, people can just knock it down and come in or attack us. We're still under threat. So some people were positioned to protect the rebuilding. And at Cascade, you might not be familiar that we have a board. And that's the board's role. Our board is there to help protect the rebuilding. The, the board is there to have eyes to say, well, what are you rebuilding and how are you rebuilding? And how can we deal with some of the issues while you're doing the rebuilding as a church that are they're kind of watching those different factors? And so not all of them could be here today, but we did want to introduce our board via pictures. Uh, we have John Sampson and Greta, Greta's here. Uh, that's his, his wife, John, but John is uh, dean of students at Warner Pacific, and today's a big day. They have a chapel. It's like a whole thing. So he couldn't be here. Uh, Shannon and Dennis. Shannon is on our board. Shannon's in the back right there. Uh, I hope you approve of the picture I, I chose for you, Shannon. I did. Yeah. It's public domain. You put it up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then we have Lana Millington, and that's actually Lana and her late husband, Dick, who was a dear friend and a great man. So we have Lana is on our board as well. And the reason we wanted to show you their faces was uh, Cascade Church exists to be safe to be, safe to grow. And it's important for us to be a safe place to be, that your presence is safe. But trusting that like, hey, this is supposed to be safe, and then myself, Jonathan, Sarah, we do something that's hurtful or, or we violate a boundary, then what we're saying is like, yeah, just come talk to us about it. That actually might not be safe. And so that's one of the reasons why we have a board. Because the board is actually Sarah and my boss. Go talk to our board members. They're here and available. They're trying to protect the building of the wall. We're in this thing together and we need that feedback. And if we have done something to violate that safety, that's why our board's there. It's this check and balance that we're trying to put in so we don't fall into this form of Constantinian Christianity. Now, I mentioned Sarah, Pastor Sarah, and I'm going to have Sarah come on up. I don't know if this is working yet. We might just have to share. Oh, you're doing that one. You've got instructions. Uh, would you welcome Sarah? I feel like we should do it again. Nailed it. Yeah. Don't worry. No one was watching. <laughs> Got it? Yeah. Right there. That's where we are. Uh, so yeah, Sarah and I, uh, Sarah, tell a little bit about yourself. How long have we been doing this thing, this cascade thing, all of that? You need to introduce yourself. Yeah. Kurt didn't tell me we were doing this. All right. Uh, I, we've done cascade together for three years. I was a youth pastor before that. There you go. Yeah, that's the thing. So that's right. And so what we wanted to share is like in our earliest days when we started, uh, there's some stories and experiences that we've had 
that kind of illustrate like what is this work of, if you didn't know, this is a church plant. So we just started this thing three years ago and we rent from a Seventh-day Adventist church. They meet here on Saturday. We meet here Sunday. And we were just like, hey, let's do a church now where one didn't exist. Uh, And so, yeah, we've had some kind of funny interactions and stories along the way. Yeah, so the first thing that you may or may not know is that Kurt and I both work in a Starbucks or a different coffee shop that we determine on that day as our office. And um, so when we're in our coffee shop, specifically the Starbucks off of Johnson Creek, that's the most likely because it's halfway between our two houses. Um, When we're in there, we've learned that people actually insert themselves within your conversations quite regularly. So um, you'll think that you're having your own private conversation like about a summer camp game is a great example. And all of a sudden, a man will turn to you and say, I think you should use a chicken. And you're like, what? And um, he was sure. This actually just happened to us a couple of months ago. This guy was positive, and he was with it, um, that we should use a chicken for this game we were doing, students will know, where we did uh, the toilet paper rolls. They had to swim out to this little dock. And he thought there should be a chicken in the middle, and that they should have to get the chicken and then swim back. Like, how was I supposed to get that many chickens? I don't know. It was like 15 chickens, but in this game. So, And what I love is as he was saying it, I was like, this is a great idea. Yes. <laughs> we should get chickens. The problem is, is that when someone goes, Kurt and I both get really excited. And we're like, you're right. That's I think a great we should idea. have hundreds of chickens in the game. Yeah. Poor guy. Thanks for doing it. If we ever see him again, he's going to be like, so how are the chicken game? And then we're going to have to come clean. We That's did not eat chickens. The other part about the Starbucks, though, is that some of them are regulars, including us, including this guy. Yeah. So we will see him. We probably will see him again. Yeah. The other fun thing story. that you've all heard at a Starbucks happen is that someone got fired. If you yeah. read the newsletter, Kurt was watching the whole thing with his headphones and pretending like he was doing his work. He wasn't. I was right. listening That's the regular. entire time. It was fascinating. People have to pay for entertainment like that. He didn't get fired at the end of the day. I wasn't celebrating someone's misery. So if you want to break up with someone, do it at Starbucks. Uh, we'll be there with you. <laughs> the reason, and one of the other stories that we had is like our first Easter, we decided like we need to have stuff up here. Like we have art. And so like we went to Ikea and we got like these rolls and these banners. And it was after a Sunday morning and we bought like a grommet kit. And we're trying to put grommets in these banners to hang them up. And it's like two hours after church. I think three. Both of us have our spouses at home like we had waiting youth group for that us. Night. Sarah has you and we're like, yeah. what are what are we doing <laughs> with our lives? Like it got existential. Like what are we doing? here anymore. We got real stuck on that grommet and it wouldn't work. It We're not good at it. Don't it hire It didn't us. work if you check our work in the back. The, the reason why we share that is like there's been so much of Cascade and the building the wall that's just been straight survival. Like there's something here that we want to reclaim. There's something that we want to do, but it involves chickens at Starbucks and grommets four hours after a Sunday. And we've just been going and working and we haven't like stepped back very often and said, well, like, what is this? And even kind of looking at our different roles. And so one of the things that was kind of helpful was a year ago, we got invited to a church planters luncheon. Yeah, it's two years now. I think it's two years now. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it was a fascinating experience. Yeah, so um, we went to this church planner thing, and just to give context, so I was a youth pastor before we started Cascade, and so if your youth pastor 
and you happen to be female, you're often one of the only uh, women that attend or in the room at all that's, um, yeah, that's there. So I was pretty used to that experience. And so when we went to this church plant lunch, I think I anticipated that. Like, oh, okay, I have long blonde hair, but we're going to be okay. We're going to make it. And um, we walked in, and it was an interesting experience because uh, not only was I the only female in the room that they pointed out publicly to the entire room that I was the only one there, they, um, everyone wanted to clarify why I was there, um, like to make it okay for them, I think, basically. So many asked, like, are you Kurt's wife? She was like, no, her name's Sally. She's not here. She's working. I don't know. I went to weird explanations. Or um, other people would ask me, like, are you the secretary? Like, are you Kurt's assistant? Like, there's just, like, a lot of assumptions made, basically, in most of my interactions. And um, at that point, really, my specialty was in kids and students. And so I just ended up saying, no, I'm, I'm the kids pastor, because it was easier for me. And we realized that um, they would like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And we kind of walked away from that experience, and Kurt and I realized that that wasn't going to work anymore. That wasn't the explanation that uh, it didn't represent how the church plant was functioning, and it made it okay for someone else. And it honestly made it kind of comfortable for me, too, because then we could just get out of the awkwardness of the conversation. But I didn't want to do that. Like, I, I didn't want to, I wanted to lean into that really awkward moment. And so moving forward from that, Kurt and I got in the car, I think probably between some tears for me. And I think, one, I said, I never want to do that again. <laughs> and I don't think we've ever gone back. We've never been back. We've never no. been back. And um, two, I think I said, we can no longer call me kids pastor. Like, we have to call this something else. And that's when we moved to associate pastor terminology. And a big reason for that was we were trying to express reality. So when it comes to Cascade, one of the things that we, we want, because we don't spend a lot of time talking about this, like, hey, this is the message series, here's the things we're doing. But we operate as a co-pastorate. There's not, like, one of us that makes the decisions and the other person acts out the work. Like, we're sharing this thing. And what was so painful about that experience is that people, because of their preconceived ideas about gender in the church were like, you explain your presence here. And ultimately, we settled for something that was less than what's true. This is an equal sharing of it. And so one of the things we want to let you know is that this at Cascade is a co-pastorate, that Sarah and I have shared in the work, have been here, and we are equals in that going forward. And we love having Sarah preach up here, and it's great, and we want to create opportunities for that. But we also want to say, but let's be careful about assuming like, oh, you're a co-pastorate when? The work that Sarah does in kids ministry is incredibly valuable and incredibly important. And we don't like, yeah, those are the throwaway messages and these are the good ones. That there's an equality in, in how we share the load and what we do here. It's a full co-pastorate, regardless of, of who's taking on what roles. And that isn't to like, you guys are getting it wrong, or you've been mean. Why, how would you know that? Why would you know how these things function? And because we've been in straight survival for so long, we haven't taken the time to explain that's how these things function. This is who we are and what our roles look like. So what I want to do is... I want to look at one last passage, and then we're going to kind of share one more thing. This is in the next chapter in Nehemiah, Nehemiah 5, 6 through 8. And this is Nehemiah is kind of responding to something he, said, he sees. He says, when I heard the outcry in these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind, then accused the nobles and the officials. 
I'm going to explain in a second what he's mad about. I told them, you're charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have brought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. And now you're selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. Nehemiah is rebuilding this wall and he looks out and like the nobles that are still there, the Jews that are still there, have started charging interest of the poor people that are living among them. So Jewish governors are charging Jewish commoners money. They can't pay the interest on their loans, so they're selling their children into slavery. The reason why I think that part of the story is so important is that Nehemiah didn't come to rebuild something and like, when we get this wall up, then we'll have arrived. The wall isn't worth rebuilding unless justice is done in that community. Ultimately, what Nehemiah is rebuilding is this idea of God's shalom, God's peace, the kingdom of God operating, and it involves no abuses, no attacks, no people being marginalized or taken advantage of. And so the reason why we we talk about that is the thing we're trying to build here, it isn't Constantinian Christianity. It's something that we hope brings about justice. It's something that brings about the way that God has for us. And if you were here earlier in our message series in Numbers, to elicit that Hebrew word ken, where Zelophehad's daughters say, like, if there's no, like, we're not married, we're not have it. we think we should get our father's land. And when Moses asks God, God says, ken, yes, at last. I have this thing that's already written. I have this way to operate, and now I get to show it to you. The wall is only worth rebuilding if we're bringing about that kind of justice. And so we wanted to talk a little bit about what are we excited about? What are we looking forward to at Cascade? Sarah? Um, I'm excited currently about, um, we recently were sitting with someone we both really respect and we were talking about like, what does it mean to be co-pastors? And we both realized that we didn't have a model of a male and female in our case that had done that and had done that well. And so I think it felt or it feels a little bit like we're trying to create a path in something we don't really know how or we haven't seen it modeled before super well. So if you know someone, let us know. We're still on the lookout. Um, But so I think just personally, I'm excited for what that means. And I hope that means that Kurt will be volunteering in the nursery shortly. So Absolutely. Especially when those volunteers are mad that we're going so long. Yep. I'm excited about building a curious Christian community where we have the ability to say that there's some aspects of the church that we have in America today has been influenced by Constantinian Christianity. It just is. So how are we getting that? We're not going to move against that tide by saying, look how we're not doing it. We're going to do that by saying, how could we be doing it? What's happening here? How have we got it wrong? How have we got it right. What's the wins that we can celebrate? The thing that I'm looking forward to is building a place where we all have voice, where we all matter, and your input is a part of Cascade. Cascade isn't something that Sarah and I do in Starbucks with chicken conversations and putting in grommets. It's something we do, and that's a big part of our eight-week experiment coming up. Ultimately, the hope is that would you join us in bringing life back to the stones. That line that Sanibel, like, can you bring life back to those stones as burned as they are? The invitation is, would you join us? This thing doesn't exist because Sarah and I work here. It exists because of you. It's a community. And our hope is that we're providing some help to that as something that we give a lot of our time and energy to.
but we want you all to be a part of it. And we feel like this is something rebuilding and our world needs this version of Christianity now more than ever before as people are walking away from the whole thing saying it's corrupt to its core. This isn't anything to do with Jesus. We don't want to start over. We want to rebuild and we want to rebuild with you. Would you pray with me? God, God, you're the author of grace and of peace and of justice and of love. And so, God, would you lead us ever forward? Because we try and rebuild something. God, would you keep us humble and would you keep us curious? And God, would you help us continue to move after everything that Jesus was and is? God, would you help us hold power well? to serve those who don't have it. God, I pray that you would call and bring to this place people that resonate in the same way. And God, like Nehemiah rebuilding a wall, that something beautiful would come from the ashes and the rubble. God, the people that are supposed to be here will be here. And God, we can bring about a bit more of your justice and your love and your grace in this world today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So would you stand? It's time to eat. <laughs> May we go about the work of rebuilding, not slapping the name of Jesus or a cross sticker on something that is so far from who Jesus was, but understanding at the core that there is still life in these stones. Amen and amen. Let's go eat pizza and ice cream. <laughs>